We are in the process of, if this is the first time you've been with us, we're in the process of looking at things related to the end times, things related to last things. And last week we were looking at um, some of the claims about the, the state of Israel and the Jewish people, claims that, that they have some sort of special role to play uh, at the end times. We looked at some of the reasoning for that. And as we finished up last week, uh, we looked at two passages, that um, one from Paul and one from Revelation, that call that into question. Uh, one is that the role of Israel uh, in God's plan, as far as physical Israel, has ended. But that spiritual Israel, uh, as Paul talks about in Romans chapters 9 through 11, has always been those people that approach God uh, through faith. And so that Israel is the Israel that Paul is talking about when he says all Israel will be saved. Well, what does he mean by all Israel? He means all Israel, all those who are uh, children of Abraham through faith. And then we also looked at Revelation chapter 7, the 144,000, how that is a very symbolic number. And when you look at the listing of the 12 tribes there, it's a very odd listing. Uh, it doesn't match up with the birth order of uh, Jacob's children. Uh, it does not match up with the tribes um, in, uh, of Israel, the people that actually had land. Uh, and so we should understand that symbolically and not literally, that there will be 144,000 Jews that will suddenly convert uh, before the end of time. But this aspect, perhaps more so than some of the other uh, issues and beliefs about the end times, has had some very distinct political consequences. One of those is the creation of Israel itself. Now, throughout the 19th century, there were a lot of Jews that desired a homeland. And there was a movement within uh, Judaism known as Zionism, which was trying to work towards having a new Jewish state. But that really began to be successful when some Protestant Christians who bought into this notion of Israel having a role at the end times uh, thought to kind of hasten the, uh, the timeline, so to speak. And so as these, uh, these Protestants became very involved politically, both in Great Britain and in the United States, to help create a nation of Israel. And so, you know, there's the, the creation of Israel itself is connected with these end times. But also, since the 1970s, a lot of our foreign policy related to the Middle East has been shaped by this assumption that Israel as a state, as a nation, has an important role to play in the end times. And so the reason the United States is so heavily connected politically in Israel has been, well, traditionally it had been the only Middle Eastern democracy, but then also this view of you know, its importance in the end times. And so we've been heavily involved politically as a country, uh, because of that. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't support Israel, uh, but we shouldn't be supporting it for those reasons, right? because the, the, that's not what the Bible teaches. So, you know, this has had some political consequences, and sometimes it's even led people to justify Israel's actions, even though uh, Israel might have been in the wrong. Uh, certainly, Israel's been in, uh, in a lot of conflicts with the Palestinians, uh, and sometimes the Palestinians have been more of the aggressor. Sometimes Israel's been the aggressor. But those people that really believe in this end times thinking have kind of have this blind endorsement 
uh, of Israel. Uh, and I don't think we should ever have a blind endorsement of anyone or anything. Uh, certainly we want to support uh, our allies as a country and, and, and work for the good of all people across, uh, across the globe. Um, but we shouldn't be blinded by um, a theology that doesn't have uh, good support. Uh, so we, we need to be very mindful of that when we hear all this rhetoric uh, about Israel is that often it's motivated by this assumption that they have a role to play in the end times. And so support of Israel is not about supporting the Israelis. It's not about supporting the Jews. It's supporting what they think is this end times. So we need to be uh, mindful of that is that this, this is kind of bled over into our politics and shapes a lot of our politics without uh, some of us even recognizing uh, that. Any last questions? I know, you know, if you weren't here last week, uh, you know, you might not have too much of what we talked about, but are there any last questions or, or comments related to this notion of the role of Israel? Yes, the, uh, David pointing out this idea that uh, the creation of Israel was under this idea of you know, returning uh, Jews to the promised land. Well, you know, God's fulfilled all his promises uh, to Israel. Uh, and so you know, not that it was uh, you know, necessarily uh, something that needed to be done to help God out. Uh, you know, God had fulfilled all of his promises to the physical people uh, of, of Israel. If there's nothing else, let's turn then to talking about another aspect, kind of two kind of interrelated aspects, uh, the, the Antichrist and the Battle of Armageddon, uh, often two very interconnected concepts. Uh, will there be a one-world ruler that will arise uh, who will actually be on the force, side of the forces of evil, right, supported by Satan? And will there be an end-times battle? Right, the, the last battle between good and evil, between um, God and Satan. Very, very prominent in a lot of theologies, a lot of popular culture, movies. Um, a lot of people uh, buy into this, and a lot of people make a lot of money off of getting people to buy into these things. Let's start first with uh, the Antichrist. So the assumption here is that at some point in the future, there will be a person who will arise, who will end up kind of taking over the world. It will bring all the nations of the world together uh, and will rule over them. Uh, there will be kind of a support for this at first, uh, but only later will it become evident that this person uh, is, is actually evil and working uh, for the, uh, on the intent of evil. There have been various times uh, in history, especially in the 20th century, where people have suspected, right, this is getting ready to happen. Uh, so when the European Union began developing, uh, there was a concern that this was providing the foundation for the Antichrist to arise. The United Nations, uh, when it developed, and, and even today, 
as the United Nations gets involved in a variety of political things, people say, okay, it's moving towards the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to come through the United Nations. Now, sometimes people will talk about one Antichrist, and sometimes they'll talk about two. With those that believe in two Antichrists believe that there will be a political figure who will kind of take over the world, and there will be a religious figure, a religious Antichrist, who will kind of unite a lot of the, uh, the people of the world under a one-world religion, a religion that's kind of a, a mixture of all the current religions. Now remember, in, in the concept here for a lot of people, the assumption is that this person's going to arise around the time of the rapture, around the time that will lead into the tribulation, and so the world's Christians will be mostly gone at this point. We, of course, have already looked at that issue uh, and, and called that into question. But will there be a dictator, so to speak, that develops and rises at that point? There are a couple of passages that people will point to that they would claim testify or, or prophesy the uh, arising of this person. One of the major ones is the passage from Second. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, referring to the man of lawlessness or the man of sin. Paul writes there, this is from the English Standard Version, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the, bright, with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception from those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so a lot of people believe that this passage is teaching about this, this man of sin, this man of lawlessness, uh, this is the Antichrist, uh, and the Antichrist will arise, he'll kind of put himself against God, uh, he'll have power, uh, he'll have signs and wonders that he will do um, in, in opposition to God, and he will deceive people. We'll look at another passage here in a minute, but there's a couple things to, to note uh, with respect to this. Paul says, writing to first century Thessalonica, it is already at work. Right, so it was already at work in the first century. What he was talking about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 was already beginning in the first century. And the Thessalonians knew what he was talking about. He had expressed that to them. So it's important to see that, the, that already we're talking about things that had taken place in the first century. So unless there is somebody around that is 2,000 years old. We might originally begin to question whether this passage is referring to a coming world ruler. 
Additionally, um, we, we should note there are a couple of other things that people uh, will say this passage is about. They'll say that this refers to the Pope. It doesn't refer to the Pope. Um, because, again, Paul said it was already at work, and there was no Pope. All right? Despite what our Catholic friends might say, historically there was no Pope until the 4th or 5th century. There was not something going on in the 1st century that reflects the papacy. So, we're already kind of suspicious, or should be, as to whether this passage is referring to some sort of future ruler. Another passage, though, uh, that is related to this is um, John's visions in Revelation chapter 13 of two beasts. And it's out of these two beasts that people will sometimes say there will be a political antichrist and a religious antichrist. We're going to look at most of uh, chapter 13 here uh, to kind of get the picture of what they're talking about. And so John writes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of, the lo- book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So there are a couple of things out of this passage, right? That the beast is going to be over every tribe, people, language, and nation. We know he's on the bad side because he's in league with the dragon. Chapter 12 tells us the dragon is Satan. So anybody on the side of the dragon is, is on the side of evil. But there will be this deception that the beast will convince, uh, you know, people will be convinced to worship the beast. The second beast is described a few verses later, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So the second beast exercises religious functions, encourages people to worship the first beast. It has two horns like a lamb, right? It looks good, but it speaks like a dragon, right? Again, the dragon Satan. The 
question that where you get the debate, of course, is, is this worship leader, so to speak, going to be another power, or is it just going to be somebody that's supporting a singular antichrist? Is this what Revelation is teaching? As we've mentioned before, especially with Revelation, it has to make sense to those first century Christians originally before we attempt to make any sort of application to us today. So would a prophecy of a coming world ruler thousands of years away from their time who's going to persecute a completely separate group of people, would that have meant anything to help them with the persecution they were enduring? Because in chapter 1 of Revelation, John talks about the persecution that both he and the members of the churches of Asia are experiencing. I, I don't know that that necessarily would be comforting. If, if the goal of Revelation is to comfort those people first, to tell them about things that are going to happen in the future to a completely different group of people, it doesn't seem to me that that itself would be comforting to those first century Christians. But, in addition... There are other things that John says about this first beast that I think we need to pay attention to. And those come in Revelation chapter 17. In Revelation chapter 17, John sees a prostitute. And the prostitute is sitting on the back of the first beast. And so... Um, we're given a little bit more of a description of this first beast in chapter 17. John writes there beginning in verse 3, and then we'll drop down to verse 9. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to the destruction. And I didn't uh, include this, but we probably should have include, included verse, seven, uh, verse 18 of that chapter, which says, The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So, Re Revelation 17, John gives us some keys to understand that first beast. Here are the keys. The woman sitting on the first beast represents a city. Right? It says woman means city. It's a city that rules over the peoples of the earth. Okay. This city sits on a beast that has seven heads, ten whores. John tells us, says heads, it means hills. Says heads, it means kings. Right? So the heads represent hills, represents kings. And so the woman it is a city seated on seven hills. What about these seven kings, though, John? Five of them have fallen, says John. One is. So what city 
that ruled over the nations of the world that existed at the time that John was writing would fit this. It's got to be Rome. So what's the beast that Rome is seated on? Seated on? It's got to be the Roman emperor. So the first beast isn't some coming world ruler. The first beast is the Roman Empire. This passage doesn't prophesy things about what are going to happen in our future. It's about things that happen to John's future, but it's our past. So we're not looking for some antichrist to kind of take over the world. That's not what Revelation 13 teaches. But what about that second beast? Well, what's that second beast do? It gets people to worship the first beast. The first beast, Roman Empire, Roman emperors. Did people worship the Roman emperors by the first century? Yeah, they did. We sometimes refer to it historically as the cult of emperor worship. So John's warning them, don't get trapped, don't get wrapped up in this cult of emperor worship. Don't get wrapped up in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is motivated by the dragon. The dragon is Satan. So Revelation 13 isn't about our future, it's about our past. And symbolically telling those first century Christians about not compromising with the Roman Empire. So we have to be careful with some of these passages because they they don't teach what sometimes people claim that they teach. Additionally, a a third part of this, right? So we have questions about this man of sin. I'll tell you, I have no idea what that man of sin, man of lawlessness is. Is I can tell you what it's not. And part of the reason I can't tell you is because the Thessalonians had information we don't have. Paul says in that passage, you know these things. I told you about them while I was there. Right? So he told the Thessalonians what he's talking about. I can only tell you what the passage says. I can't tell you much beyond that. I can tell you what it's not. It's not the Pope. It's not an Antichrist. But what about this Antichrist? The phrase is used several times, only though, in John's letters. It's used four times in Scripture, only in John's letters, and only, well, predominantly, in the plural, Antichrist. So when when John talks about Antichrists, What's he talking about? Is he talking about a coming one world ruler? Verse 18 of chapter 2. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. That's the only time really that it's singular. So now, many Antichrists have come. John says, I'll tell you about the Antichrist. There's a bunch of Antichrists. Now. Right, when he's writing, late first century. From this we know that it is last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. 
For if they belonged to us, they would, not have, they would have remained with us. But by going out, they made it plain that none of them belonged to us. Right? So these antichrists that John's talking about are people that had left the first century church. They believed some false things. Verse 22, what did they believe? Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Who's the Antichrist, John? The Antichrist is that person that denies Jesus is the Messiah. Evidently, some people within those communities that John is writing to denied that, and so they had left. He further says... uh, Chapter 4, verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not, uh, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming. I was wrong. There's another time it's uh, singular. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming. And now it is already in the world. What's the spirit of the Antichrist, John? Not only to deny Jesus is the Christ, but to deny that he's from God. And then 2 John and verse 7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh, any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. So they don't believe Jesus is the Christ. They don't claim Jesus is from God. And they don't believe Jesus came in the flesh. That's the antichrist. That's what it means to be an antichrist. Not some one world ruler. Not some dictator that's coming to arise. It's those people that were a part of the community of faith, part of the church, that for whatever reason denied that Jesus was fully human, that denied that Jesus was from God, denied that Jesus was the Christ. So it has nothing to do with politics and everything to do with what the nature of Jesus is. Is. Questions or comments? Anything that we need to clarify or maybe explore a little bit more fully? Tim. That's a good question. Um, what's this? John, uh, Jim's asking, what's the difference about the beast coming out of the sea and the beast coming out of the earth? Um, there probably is one. I'm not entirely sure what it is. There, you know, some people have suggested uh, that the sea suggests the, that John is using the sea as kind of a um, symbol for the struggling, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's humanity, but it's, it's kind of this spiritual struggling we have, and the earth is more kind of this political type of thing. I'm not sure exactly what the differences are. Maybe it doesn't matter. Again, I can't tell you everything from Revelation. There's a lot I don't know. The message might use the honcho antichrist. That, the message translation might, might say honcho. They take a lot of liberties with it. 
Other questions or comments? Kind of connected as well with the Antichrist. Before we get to the Battle of Armageddon, um, we've already done some conclusions, is 666. Let's talk about 666. If you were here for the hymn sing on Friday, uh, we sang hymn number 665. We sang hymn number 667, but nobody got up and led hymn number 666, which is really a good song. I mean, it's probably one that we, not too many of us know. Um, it's, uh, it's 666 in our songbook. It's also, if you've ever seen the, um, uh, what's the other one? Songs of Faith and Praise. It's 666 in that songbook as well. So it's the spacious firmament on high. So I think it's right. It's a very complicated song to sing. Got some really interesting harmonies and patterns in it. And so I guess all these hymn book uh, compilers have just said, nobody's ever going to sing this song. Stick it at 666. But there is kind of a, a lot of mystery, trepidation, fear uh, connected with this. I, I made the comment a couple weeks ago. Uh, about you know people who uh, are concerned uh, when their uh, their like their their bill comes to six dollars and sixty six cents right you either pump a little bit more gas or you buy a pack of gum or something like that and after I said that several of you came up and shared some things with me about people you knew I was applying for a job at the University of Central Florida uh, to teach at the University of Central Florida which is where I was before I, I came here. And uh, the morning of my interview, I stayed at the hotel. They said, go ahead and uh, have, have breakfast at the hotel and then charge it to your room. We'll take care of it. And I was there for a job teaching religion. Uh, I was in a philosophy department, so I'm there for a job teaching religion. And so I went down. They had a buffet, but I looked at the buffet, and I was like, there's really not a lot that I'd want here. I'm just going to order off the menu. Uh, and my bill came to $6.66. Right, so here I'm applying for a job in religion. My bill's $6.66. I got the job anyway, so <laughs> I guess that didn't work against me. But there's some, there's some concern about this, this, uh, this number. Um, and, and people have offered all sorts of things uh, about this number. Um, it is not related to a supercomputer in Belgium. Uh, the mark of the beast is not some sort of chip implant right, that you're going to get, and that's how you're going to, you know, you're going to instead of a card, you're going to scan uh, your chip in your hand. Uh, it's not barcodes. Right? People believe that it was barcodes when they first started being used. Uh, it's not Ronald Wilson Reagan. Right? There were six letters in his first name, six in his second, and his middle name, and six letters in his last name. So people said Ronald, Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist. Um, so there's a lot of things that people have said, right? This is the mark of the beast. This is who the Antichrist is. Let's look at the passage that talks about uh, 666. This is, this is about the second beast. And so when it says it there, it's the second beast. And it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the number of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number 
is 666. A couple things to kind of keep in mind when starting off this passage. In chapter 12 of Revelation, we're introduced to the dragon. As I said, John tells us, the dragon Satan. And then we're introduced to these two beasts, the first beast, the second beast, who work for Satan. So essentially we have here, we might use, if we use the term trinity, right, a counterfeit trinity, right, kind of a, a false representation of the Godhead, right, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, then you have the, the dragon and the two beasts. In chapter 7, the angels seal the servants of God on the forehead. And the servants of the beast are marked on the right hand or the forehead. So this is kind of counterfeit, right? Everything Satan tries to do is counterfeit of what God does. Right? So already we kind of said there's a, there's a greater theological picture behind this about what Satan does. But what about this number? Well, there have been a couple of people that have attempted to suggest what this means. There are three basic options. Now, obviously, with anything, there are a bunch of divisions within those options, but there's three general interpretations. One is that it has something to do with the length of the beast, how, how long the beast is going to be in power. Now, often this is connected with the assumption that the beast, the first beast, is the Antichrist. Right? And so it's about the length of the Antichrist's reign. Other people say and it, it's, it, it specifically stands in for the Antichrist. Right? It's, it's pointing to who the Antichrist is going to be. Right? So one is kind of it's more how long he's going to be in power. The other is um, that it's more going to be about uh, the Antichrist himself. Still others, however, suggest that it's representative of an ancient practice known as gematria. All right, so what's gematria? Well, gematria is uh, an ancient practice of converting letters of the alphabet into numbers bringing those numbers together to represent phrases or names. In both Hebrew and Greek, there were not numbers. And so the letters of Hebrew and Greek stood in for numbers. And so as you went down through the alphabet, each number or each letter had a numeric value. So Aleph was one. Bait was two, Gimel was three, Dalit was four, down to ten. And then you went 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, right down to 100. And then it was 200, 300, 400. And so if you wanted to write a number, you had to include all those letters, right? So, um, you know, if you wanted to write an 11, you would have to include the letter for 10 and the letter for one. And that would be 11. So there's that general practice of trying, you know, there's numerical values. Well, people would use this uh, for other types of purposes as well. For example, uh, there was graffiti that's been discovered in Pompeii. Right? Pompeii, you know, uh, fossilized in time by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, 
There's a graffiti found there in Pompeii that says, I love her whose number is 545. And so essentially, it's, it's this woman right, that this graffiti artist was in love with. If you took all the letters of her name, put them together, it added up to 545. There was an, uh, a verse uh, of the time uh, kind of antagonizing the emperor Nero that said, Nero, Orestes, Alcmeon, their mothers slew. A calculation new. Nero, his mother slew. In Greek, both the name Nero and the phrase his mother slew total to 1,005. Right, so this person is kind of making a play off of Gematria. So the third number is, or the third, op, uh, the third option is that 666 gives us a clue to the name of the first beast, or the name of something related to the first beast. Now, going from a number back to a name is a challenge. Right? If you have a name, you can figure out the number. But just giving you a number there's a lot of combinations that can work together to give you a number. And so Gematria is probably the most likely option for a couple of reasons. John says at the beginning of verse 18, this calls for wisdom, right? So you have to pay attention. There's some wisdom needed here to understand this. Let anyone with understanding calculate. So by using the word calculate, he's telling you, I'm giving you a gematria. I'm giving you something about this beast. And so the number 666 is gematria. It's the name of somebody. Well, okay. The best option I've seen is that it is a gematria for the Emperor Nero. Particularly, Nero's name in Hebrew, Neron Caesar, which looked perfectly well on my computer at home. Right now, you should be staring at uh, the, uh, the Hebrew of Neron Caesar. Uh, all of those letters, you've only gotten one of them. I don't know why that one worked and the rest of them didn't. So this is Hebrew. And you might say, okay, New Testament, we're writing in Greek. Why are we talking about Hebrew? If you really want to understand Revelation, you need to know your Old Testament. There, out of the 404 verses in Revelation, 287 of them contain allusions to the Hebrew Scriptures. Over half of the verses contain allusions to the Old Testament. John expected his readers to know the Old Testament. So if you're going to give a clue, why put it in Greek that everybody can understand? You put it in Hebrew so the person that has wisdom can help. If you look at it, and I'm thinking these letters aren't going to show up either. Well, those letters showed up, but the numbers didn't show up. So that first letter on there equals 50. 
The second letter, resh, equals 200. Vav equals 6. The second, uh, noon, equals 50 as well. Uh, Kaf is 100. Samek is 60. Resh is 200. Right, you total those letters up, you get to 666. What's even stranger about it is if you look at your footnotes, you might have a note that says some manuscripts have 616. Now, most manuscripts have 666, so it's most likely that John wrote 666, but somehow 616 showed up in some manuscripts. Wouldn't that blow everybody's mind if 616 is actually the, the problematic Neron Caesar, in Hebrew, you could drop that second N and still spell it correctly. That second N is worth 50. 616. Now again, I'm not saying absolutely, because I don't think we can be absolutely sure, but it seems to me that Nero is probably the most likely. But, I believe Revelation was written in the 90s. Nero's been dead 30 years. So why is he talking about Nero? The latter part of the first century, there was a belief that went around the Roman Empire that Nero was coming back to life. It was known as the Nero Redivivus myth. People in the eastern part of the Roman Empire refused to believe that Nero was dead, and there were rumors that he was going to return. For those later decades, there were edicts that were circulated in Nero's name. Uh, in July of 69, a lookalike thought to be Nero uh, was killed by a governor in the Roman Empire. Uh, in the 80s, there was a second pretender. Uh, he actually received the backing of the Parthians, which, were the which was an empire outside Rome, which was in the first century, it was their constant enemy. Uh, he tried to depose the emperor Titus. Uh, in 88-89, there was a third pretender backed by the Parthians who was eventually turned over to the Romans. And so there was this constant thing throughout the end of the first century about Nero's coming back. Now, did John believe Nero was coming back? No. What's he telling us? Or what's he telling them? That there was going to be somebody like Nero. And he was going to do some things to those Christians, so watch out. And there was somebody, the Emperor Domitian was just as bad, if not worse, than Nero. And so I believe right, that Nero is the most likely candidate. But even if you don't agree with that, you must understand within the context of Revelation 13, they knew what he was talking about. And so it can't be something in the future that we have to worry about and so if your bank wants to put a chip on your debit card, it's okay. Right? Uh, or anything else that people will come up with. Right? Now certainly, we still have to have the kind of same kind of message of don't compromise with, with Satan. But we don't need to worry about an antichrist or the mark of the beast. Thank you for uh, your, your willingness to let me go a couple minutes over, but I wanted to finish that up. Lord willing, next week we will talk about the Battle of Armageddon. If you've been here a couple weeks, I think you can probably figure out what the conclusion is going to be. We seem to be 
constantly saying, here's what it says, but, uh, but next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up with the Battle of Armageddon. I mean, talking about it, not actually having it.